You're listening to DevOps and Docker Talk, and I'm your host, Brett Fisher. These are edited audio-only versions of my YouTube live show that you can join every Thursday at brett.live. This podcast is sponsored by my Patreon members. I'd like to thank all the paid supporters that make this show possible. You can get more info and follow my updates on all the content and open source I'm creating at patreon.com slash brettfisher. And as a reminder, all the links for this show, the topics we discuss, as well as the links I've already mentioned, are available on the podcast website at podcast.brettfisher.com. In this episode, my guest is Jake Warner, founder of Cycle.io. It's a Kubernetes alternative platform that streamlines the process of building and running containers. Now, I'll be honest, I'm skeptical of a non-Kubernetes orchestrator in an ecosystem where all the tools and services are focused on K8s. I've never used Cycle before, but I'm a big fan of pre-container platforms like Heroku that make it as plug and play as possible to run your apps. Yet, I'm always looking for one that uses the container image as the standard object I'm deploying, regardless of where it's running. Jake demos a compelling scenario where they give you a custom Linux build on top of the cloud of your choice, and then brings all the necessary pieces for teams under 50 to create a much simpler deployment and hosting solution for containers. We dig into features, what's behind the scenes, making it all work, and take great questions from the live audience. So please enjoy this episode with Jake Warner from Cycle. Let's get to it. All the way, actually, from Reno, right? All the way from Reno. I was like, I didn't know yes. where you were from, but you just did say that. Jake, welcome <laughs> to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to, it's a, it's a dive into some DevOps and Docker talk. Yeah. All right. So let me give everybody a quick take on Jake. He's 15 years as a developer, cloud and infrastructure, all that stuff. Got a great background. Sim similar backgrounds we figured out already. A similar interest as well. He founded a new uh, company. What, what year did you found this company, by the way? I don't think. So we started Building Cycle in uh, late 2015. Okay. Okay. So a ways ago. And you're the founder and CEO, and you've been doing that ever since. Yeah. Yep. Started Cycle in 2015. Uh, before that, we had a dev shop that I had for a couple of years. And then before that was infrastructure. Infrastructure, DevOps, or sorry, infrastructure, dev shop, back to infrastructure. It's right. a better world to live in. I have done, I can, it's hard to fo focus in my career. I just, it's random. If you look at resume, it would just be like, does this guy even know what he's doing? <laughs> so I appreciate that you're all a little bit, it's always nice to do some infrastructure and some development because I think that both those perspectives really add, they add value to each other. Like I love when a developer understands infrastructures, has some experience in infrastructure because I come from that background and vice versa is also true. Great to have you on the show. Real quick, tell us a little bit about your background before Cycle. Like what, what did, what were you doing then? Yeah, started teaching myself uh, to code or how to code when I was mid-teens. When I was 18, I worked for a company named SingleHop, which was one of the earlier bare metal as a service infrastructure providers. Uh, worked there for uh, a number of years. They've, they've since been acquired. I think, I think 2016 they were acquired. But yeah, I worked there for a number of years. And then just mentioned after that, I was like, I have these entrepreneurial kind of urges. Let's build a, a dev shop and build products for other companies. In the process of building these products for other companies, this was before Docker. It was actually right around the time that Docker was coming out. But I, I just, there's so many times we're going through that process of building these products. You had to go through that entire DevOps lifecycle every single time. And at one point I was like, there has to be an easier way for, to do this. And that was right around the time that when I started coming to that conclusion, the Docker started to grow in popularity. And then I was like, okay, Docker's growth is a great tool. I, I love how easy it's made a lot of these things. And then it was taking that and pairing that back with OpenStack because I was a, a contributor for OpenStack back in the day. And I was running a lot of the OpenStack stuff for single hop that I kind of pair those two. And I was like, like, what can I do with all of that previous knowledge that can help make containers even easier? And that's mm -hmm. what, what led to the, the idea of I should build Cycle. I'm just going to quit my job and do something totally, totally not usual. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've had a lot of startup failures myself. So I, I understand the startup part. I don't understand the winning part. So congratulations on being successful, having a big team. That's exciting. So my, my little startup hat, I put it on. I remember all those startup conferences and all that bootstrapping vibe that I'm sure that was really exciting times in the beginning. Uh, I actually just went through your yearly recap. So it sounds like you guys did a lot in 2021. So congratulations. So we talk about orchestration a lot on this show. Kubernetes isn't in the name, but it all started back in the day with 
early days were Mesos and Swarm and early Kubernetes and ECS. And then we started to see all sorts of experiments and other orchestrators. HashiCorp still has theirs. And Azure, I think, made one. And we just, we had this sort of explosion of ways to deploy and manage containers. And now, much to my chagrin, Kubernetes has sucked all the oxygen out, out of the room. So the internet, even though there's all these other orchestrators and options for how you can run containers and the clouds are always coming up with ways for new ways to run containers. I feel Kubernetes still gets so much play, even though it's not always the right thing. And it's tough for people to know when they shouldn't use Kubernetes. So can we talk about that for a minute? What yeah. is your perspective on why you shouldn't, when you shouldn't, or what things you should consider for not using Kubernetes? I think there's a good amount to talk about there, but adding maybe some initial context of why we you know, initially came up with the idea of should we go a different direction than Kubernetes, right? Right. And like I just mentioned, with OpenStack being a developer in that ecosystem, we saw what happened when you had all these companies get involved and say, hey, OpenStack should do this, OpenStack should do this, to the point of where OpenStack, everyone was trying to take OpenStack and solve every single issue with it. Right. And so when Docker came around and then we started to see Kubernetes, my kind of assumption was like, all right, we saw this open with, we, we saw this happen with OpenStack. At some point, this is going to probably happen with Kubernetes. It might be years in the future. We're seeing it happen now. Every, just to the point you just made of everyone has a Kubernetes, you know, a version of Kubernetes, a distribution yeah. of Kubernetes. Everyone is doing it. Our problem with that is that when everyone tries to take Kubernetes and solve every single issue with it, now if you want to run, we've seen people spin up Kubernetes just to run a block. And it's right. like, why? And, and, and now with Cycle, obviously you can, you can, I mean, I'm not saying that Cycle is made for just hosting blogs. Like you people use Cycle for building some really complex things. We have a company that is building a, a competitor to AWS Lambda on top of Cycle right now. So you can build really complex and neat things on it. It was simple that, simply that idea is that as, as time goes on, sometimes these open source uh, solutions end up getting so complex because there's so many different people pulling in different directions that you end up in this kind of situation where the complexity outweighs the the gains. The, the idea was, all right, let's build a platform that only focuses on the 80%. When we are sitting around and figuring out new features, what we're going to work on next, et cetera, we have this, this very defined filter within our company is, will this benefit 80% or more of our customers? If the answer is no, we might open a door or we might have an API endpoint that helps people achieve that functionality, but we won't build it into the system itself. And the end result is this platform that where you might have some companies that use maybe 10, 15% of Kubernetes, if you were to break down every single feature, Cycle's built around this position that most of our users, if not all, should be using just about every one of our features. And so it'll, it's just one of those quality over quantity type uh, approaches. So we obviously cloud native has spawned a thousand ideas, right? So one of the, one of the challenges, especially with having all you great people on this show is figuring out where your product fits and how I should put, put this in my tool bag and figure out when I want to look at it. So what are the major problems that you feel like cycle kind of solves? So there's a cycle provides value in a lot of things, but one of the biggest and or one, one of the biggest things that we really had benefit to is the fact that with, if you're running it many times, I know there's some managed platforms out there, but many times you're responsible for maintaining all the updates to us. So and whenever there's a new version of Kubernetes, you have to uh, apply it. And even if you're on a platform that can automatically apply that update, you're worrying about, Hey, you know, what got deprecated, what is no longer relevant, what APIs did I just break things like that and with cycle we've taken a SaaS approach to contain orchestration where our customers are still able to own their infrastructure own their data they get to choose their cloud providers but cycle uh, our platform will push out updates automatically every two to three weeks to all of our customer infrastructure so all of the hundreds of servers that are connected to, to cycle today are all running the latest version of cycle so it's really neat because datadog did a, a report it was either last year or the year before i don't know time is a bit of a blur these days but datadog did a report where from all the metrics that they were able to sift through the average deployed version of kubernetes at the time of report was 17 and a half months out of date Right. And so then when you're in the situation where you have these people, they're like, Hey, I have security vulnerabilities. Someone just got into our infrastructure. Why? And all these 
just detailing issues where hey, I just installed this new, this new package and it doesn't work with my version of Kubernetes or whatever the, the, there's a whole bunch of different kind of cases you can go down with that. But we've seen time and time again, where companies will space, will make a large investment into Kubernetes up front. And then as time goes on, once they have everything working, it'll just be one of those things like, well, it works. And they'll just right, stop touch maintaining it, it right? Yeah. They, they won't touch it anymore. So that's one of the common themes we've common things we've seen with companies moving from Kubernetes over to Cycle is it was the CTOs, these VP of engineering that were saying like we just it felt like once we get we got something running with Kubernetes, we were doing the exact same thing six months later. That at the end of the day, it didn't help us be a better company. And so we have company and talking about the problems that we solve. It's being always up to date. It's not needing a DevOps team to maintain your underlying infrastructure and maintain your orchestration layer. It's allowing companies to double down on building their development teams and focusing on writing code and not maintaining the underlying infrastructure as part of that process. Freeing up people to do other work. And that's very nice because I haven't met a DevOps team or developer team or SRE team that has free time. I haven't met anyone who doesn't have a huge backlog and they're just trying to manage the onslaught of maintenance tasks. And I think there was a Docker report. Well, they made their own little marketing report five or six years ago when they were trying when they were still trying to explain why Docker was relevant. And one of the, I think they pulled it a, a lot of these stats from Gartner. And I remember one of them was shocking to me where it was like 80% or 70% or something of a DevOps team or developers team time is maintenance. And being in being a sysadmin and running data centers for the last 25 years, I always see a team work until they basically, they have no time left for a new innovation because they're just saddled with too much obligation of existing apps, existing infrastructure. And then they just end up having to grow the team. And I love this trend that we're finally, I feel like we're finally getting consensus on a, on a majority of teams that we need to finally follow some of the DevOps principles of putting time back into the infrastructure, back into the systems for maintenance so many teams are still not doing that, right? They're not dividing their time properly and saying no to new things when they need to manage infrastructure. They're losing these battles a lot of times. And that's what my whole consulting practice has been about is helping the teams get over some of those humps because the, the Googles of the world don't hire me. It's usually the teams that are struggling to just move forward and they, they need some Kubernetes and Docker guidance or something like that. I know this is probably anecdotal and stuff, but when you look at your customers that are on board, do, what kind of time do you see freeing up from them? Do you people, do you, do you get information from clients like on how much time they get back or what, how much time they've saved by moving the cycle and not having to manage their own Kubernetes? Yeah, we've learned about it in a number of different ways. The biggest proof point that cycles have been able to accomplish its mission, or at least I don't think that mission ever ends, but we are continuing to push forward towards it is that all of our customers, I only know of two of them that have, that employ a DevOps engineer. For, for most of our customers that have come to us, have come to us and said, hey, maybe one of our DevOps engineers left or we're getting ready to scale our DevOps team. And in the process of you know finding DevOps engineers, we came across Cycle and uh, a Cycle solution that can help us or prevent us from needing to scale that DevOps team. Can we can we take our existing DevOps team and you know empower them to do more? Are we able to empower our developers to do what you would traditionally need a DevOps team to do? And thankfully, our story has worked out uh, to where the answer to most of those companies has been yes. And I think as we continue to grow our, our customer base and things, we'll, as we get into larger companies, I, I think many of these companies will still end up having DevOps teams, but we will be able to empower those DevOps teams to, to what you just said, be able to do a lot more and, and have considerable less amount of technical debt that they're managing in the process. It'll allow them to to really double down on on the things that can actually help move companies forward and a lot less time on maintenance. Because as you were mentioning with that, that Gartner report, it's similar to, a, I think it was a Forrester report that came out in 2019 that said, most companies that are updating between their different versions of their container orchestration platforms, if they're using Kubernetes and they're updating, uh, this Forrester report came out and said that it, for most companies, they found that it was easier to deploy a brand new cluster with the new version and migrate to it, right. then update an existing. And if, if you have to do that every six months, no, no, of course you're gonna have a huge amount of technical debt because you're never getting ahead. Yeah, no, that's true. And the big updates are always scary. And even when you think everything's redundant, you always find out that there's one thing that isn't. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And I do see that trend. When the teams that figure out their automation and figure out how to truly not have drift over time, essentially the, the cluster swap or the cluster migration, I think t you're right. I, t I tend to see that as a, a more mature option as people get more sophisticated because it's almost like a maturity 
a team maturity idea where most people wouldn't consider every time I do an upgrade to completely swap clusters. But if you can get your automation dialed in a little bit, which takes a lot of work, you can probably achieve that. What do you see as like the typical uh, migration pattern? So if I'm someone who has Kubernetes on AWS, I'm using EKS or something like that. And we know we're not using Fargate, so we're managing the nodes and we're, we're having to deal with updates. And we've got people dealing with all of the complexities of AWS for just getting that Kubernetes cluster to work right and have the storage and blah, blah, blah. What's the migration look like for them? That's one of the things, yeah, I don't think we have a divine pattern for. The customers that we're going after today, we found that our niche is going after greenfield development, right? These are companies that they might already be existing companies, but they're getting ready to start new products and services where they have not yet made a lot of those decisions. And so we can say, hey, instead of spending time migrating your existing stuff to figure out if Cycle is a good solution for you, let's use Cycle for your next project. And if that's a good fit, then we can move your other stuff over. And that's been the common theme so far is that out of our customers, I'd say probably 80% of them are companies that came to Cycle with a new product that they were building. So that way it was a fresh deployment on top of Cycle because I mean, we all know that moving between different orchestration platforms is there's there's a lot of intricacies that get involved in that process, especially if you're moving you know away from Kubernetes. Right. Not, not saying that we haven't had companies that have done that, but in terms of having a defined migration process, I don't think that's an answer we have yet today. But as, as time goes on, I'm guessing that uh, more and more companies as they do that will be able to they have a better defined process for that. But the good thing is that Cycle is OCI compliant, right? So as long as you're, so if you're building containers that run on Kubernetes or run on Docker, those exact same containers will run on Cycle, even though we're not built on top of Docker, nor are we built on top of Kubernetes. And so it just makes it, at least from a container perspective, it's easy. Now, the big question that we always get when we have these companies coming to us is, hey, back with Kubernetes, I was using this ingress controller and I was using this and I was using that and I was using this. And these people actually start looking for issues almost they, because they come into cycle expecting it to almost be Kubernetes. Like you always want, once you learn something, you always approach things with like a, oh, it, it should probably be the same way. And so we always tell companies uh, and developers that are trying to cycle, like, hey, give it two weeks because if during that first week, maybe two weeks, you're going to make it more difficult on yourself because you're going to be looking for problems that you used to have to solve that cycle just does for you behind the scenes, right? Mm. Like we automatically scale load balancers for you. We automatically set up VPNs and networks and SDN networks and we manage DNS. There's so many things that we do behind the scenes that like people who are used to doing it themselves almost get confused because they want to continue doing it themselves until they realize <laughs> they don't have to. And right. we call that the magic moment, that, that moment where people finally realize that they don't have to do all these things. And that's when people get really, you're really excited about cycle because now they realize, oh, wow, I really can focus exclusively on writing code and building applications and not maintaining all these other things. It's a weird kind of shift that has to happen. So let me make sure I got some of the key points here. So we're talking about running standard OCI or Docker images. So those don't change. I'm using my own cloud provider. Is that true? So it's a cloud provider that we support. So right now we support AWS, Equinix, Metal, and Vulture. We have a number of other infrastructure providers that we expect to launch over the next quarter. Okay. Okay. But it's, but am I, man, am I paying that bill to them or? That's correct. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm not just all paying it to you. And then you happen to be using AWS behind the scenes or whatever. Correct. The first step of getting started on cycle is, uh, when you get to the provider screen is selecting which provider or providers you want to use because cycle makes it so easy to be multi-cloud that 72% of our customers actually use more than one provider. Which is one of the, which is also one of the bigger reasons that people are coming to Cycle because if they, even if they were using Kubernetes and Kubernetes was working for them at a, a single provider, like maybe they were using AWS with Kubernetes or EKS or whatever, but they're mm -hmm. saying, hey, I want to also run bare metal in more regions or I want to build my own edge network where I'm running in multiple providers with the exact same container with the exact same configuration. And Cycle makes that super, super easy because the general idea with cycles that once you have infrastructure deployed, assuming you don't add like tags and criteria and like where you're actually narrowing down like a subset of infrastructure, cycle will treat all of that infrastructure as a single pool of resources. So like once you're in our interface, you never have to log into AWS or any of these other providers. Again, you can do everything from that one interface, but you are still managing your infrastructure through that interface because you're dropping in. Once you choose that provider that you want to use, you're putting in an API key and then we are just deploying that infrastructure, managing it for you at that point. Nice. Yeah, my experience has been that people, there's a lot of hype about multi-cloud on the internet, but there's far fewer people able to achieve that in any me meaningful, significant way that doesn't just add more f 
potential failures, <laughs> you know, because the whole idea of it is to be more redundant. But often I will find that it's very fragile during people's designs and implementation phases. And there's one load balancer on one of them that will cause both to crash or if it goes down or whatever. It's an easy thing to talk about, a hard thing to do. And all this infrastructure stuff is hard enough. And multi-cloud just, I think, magnifies that, whatever, 10 times the complexity. I think I've got a feeling for, because I had, I did no prep, so I don't know cycle. So I'm acting like a new customer. I'm like, what, what do I need to do? Consider this. So uh, I haven't seen anything about the interface or any of the walkthroughs. And I know you have some demos prepared. So let's just dive into that. And maybe we can talk through some examples. Hey there, podcast listener. At this point in the live show, which this podcast comes from, we do a pretty detailed demo getting into a lot of the features, and it didn't necessarily make sense to put this in an audio-only podcast. So if you're interested more in the tool and how it functions, check out a link in the show note that will take you to the YouTube live that this comes from, and then you can get the full demo there. We're now going to jump back into the conversation after we're done with most of that demo. All right. Nice. Does that build use a standard OCI build tool, build kit, or how do yes, you know? Yes, we, how use, it... we use build kit. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. That's my favorite. So I was kind of hoping you'd say that. Yeah. Are there plans to have a local provider for development purposes that would use Kind, Minikube, and so we wouldn't run up a bill when using these public clouds? We are at the end of 2022, so later this year, looking into, uh, or sorry, planning on developing a very like high level, simple approach to local development where you can run like an extended cycle version on your own machine, but it wouldn't, wouldn't be with a, a Kubernetes district. Cause again, like the whole approach with cycle being non Kubernetes, it'd be weird to pull that in at the last step. The hope there uh, is to accomplish two things. One is that you'd be able to run these containers locally, et cetera, and do, you know, some, some quick testing. One of the things we want to accomplish is where if you have a Docker file locally that you're testing, that when you say, you know, like how you do Docker run, et cetera, and start that container, if you were to do the equivalent of cycle run, you're doing that, but we're also using the VPN connection that cycle natively builds so that that container is running inside an environment. So that way, if you're testing, like if you say, hey, I have this environment running on cycle that has a database inside of it. I want to connect as though this container is running on top of cycle, even though it's on my local machine, but that way everything is native. So you're deploying in the exact same way with host names and the XLAN networks, et cetera, as you would. We, we want that container to feel like it's running on top of cycle, even if it's running on your local machine. So is the goal there that to, it's obviously no Kubernetes, but is the goal there to also replace like Docker desktop and compose and it's literally running its own virtualization or containerization platform or on your Mac or Windows machine? Is that kind of the, the hope? That's the hope, uh, is to keep it very simple. We probably wouldn't support as many operating systems as Docker does, just because our team is a lot smaller than Docker. But it's one of those things that as the company grows that we would probably dive into a lot more. But the initial, let's say the alpha version of it would be, how can I run a container locally and make it seem as though it's running in the cycle environment with the rest of our stuff because like we have a lot of people that use cycle for stateful workloads right because they're saying hey with kubernetes it was so hard to run a stateful workload like kubernetes that made stateless workloads pretty easy but stateful workloads have been a whole problem to solve and with cycle when we were going through the development processes we said like pairing all my infrastructure knowledge and stuff from over time i was like staple is hard let's do that first because it's always i figure it's always easier to go from stateful to stateless because you're just at mm -hmm. that point you're removing stuff than going right. the other way around and then having to introduce all these extra paradigms to support stateful. So we went the opposite way. I think one of the biggest draws to cycle is, hey, I have a stateful, whatever this is, I need to run it. I want to run it alongside the rest of my applications and run it alongside the rest of my containers. Point there is that when we build that application that would run locally, being able to extend into cycle where your safe workloads are likely a database or something that you care about is you don't want to have to run all of that locally if you're if you have a development environment set up the second part of Conrad's question was you said that you wouldn't run up a bill using these public clouds but with cycle since everything ends up being we're able to utilize so much more of that ongoing infrastructure because you have the load balancer and everything else that is living on top of this infrastructure you're talking depending on what infrastructure you're using you might be most of our, we'll just very simply say, most of our customers have a development environment set up and running that is compared to their, their total cost is just such a, it's something that uh, is not meaningful to that, like in terms of the cost to support that de that development. Yeah. And I'm imagining that a lot of people coming to you and they already have their own local development setups as well, like that based on the previous conversations. It's one of those things where it, you tell everybody they got to replace everything they're doing <laughs> in it and it becomes a, hard, a heavy lift to move. I, I can see that. 
Yeah. You mentioned the stateful stuff, so I'm, I want to I want to jump on that topic for a minute because having that sysadmin background, I've previously everything was stateful up until recently. Stateless wasn't even a, really a word that we asked people. We didn't know about that, so it's a luxury that we're actually nowadays recognizing the benefits of stateless and trying to achieve that whenever possible. So when you talk about your stateful, are people running their own containerized databases and doing that themselves? Or are you providing that? Can they connect to existing cloud services like RDS? If I'm going to run databases and message queues in my app, what are my options with Cycle? The answer is all of the above. If, if you're deploying a container on infrastructure that is in AWS, Cycle will automatically build its own VPC. If you deploy like an Aurora DB on AWS to that VPC, as long as this network is set to egress only, you can connect to that Aurora DB or whatever other AWS service that you're using, as long as it's deployed to that VPC as well. Then we also have some companies that are using like Mongo Atlas and things like that. So yeah, so we have some companies doing it that way. We have other companies that are deploying full like Mongo replica sets on top of Cycle. Um, where they're letting the database itself handle all replication. We're getting ready to release a conductor framework, so that way you can build, a, I think uh, Kubernetes calls it like sidecars, where you're having a container mm -hmm. that lives alongside the cluster and can you know make decisions about when to scale and when not to scale and things like that. We have companies doing all of what you had originally in, in terms of how they want to, to manage those applications. All right. What about backups of that stateful data sets? Like, is that something you handle as well, where you're just automatically backing everything up or yes. So uh, that was a feature that we launched earlier this year. Uh, it was a partnership that we did with Backblaze. Um, and it is one of the neatest features of how we built Cycle, or sorry, maybe not how we built Cycle, but one of the implementations that we did, um, because it's just so, I think, different than a lot, how many other people would have approached it. At this point, we do another detailed demo. Check out a link in the show notes, and then you can get the full demo there. We're now going to jump back into the conversation after we're done with most of that demo. The reason we did it this way is there's so many other kind of platforms out there that when they do uh, backups, it's like, hey, just point this at a directory. But if you were to point a backup solution at a directory, and that directory, maybe you're making changes to that directory while you're backing it up. You know, maybe MySQL is still writing to that directory. Mongo is still writing to that directory. You might be backing up something that is in the middle of a write, like, and you don't mm -hmm. know that. Like, there's a lot of risk. So the idea here was, how can we allow to do native backups using the application's own preferred way of doing backups, but allow that to be super customizable, right? So what's really neat here is with this command, you can put in, you know, uh, like I said, MySQL dump. And as long as that command outputs to standard out, we back it up. So what we do is if you were to do MySQL dump back up to standard output, we in 64 kilobyte chunks, read that and then uh, aggregate it and push it over to your uh, bucket over on Backblaze. So it's really cool because you're using native backups, right? You're not using any extra disk space on your server during, other than like, you know, 64 kilobyte right. as we're outputting it. If you're backing up a container that only has a 10 gigabyte volume attached to it, and if you're using nine gigabytes of the 10 gigabytes, you definitely can't back up that nine gigabytes into that remaining gigabyte, right? And so the, the idea was, hey, if we can, you know, back up in 64 kilobyte chunks, and I mean, it still ends up being one big file at your backup right. provider. So it's like, a, you're like backup, can, you're streaming backups, basically. I'm yeah. literally streaming backups. Yeah. Everything in cycles written in Golang. So we're just doing uh, an IO, you know, copy uh, onto another stream. And, and and backing up whatever you output the standard out. And then it's the same for restore. If you were to define a restore command, whether that's, I think it's MySQL import. I don't remember. Um, I think it's MySQL import. But point is still the same. If you use standard input, uh, sorry, as long as you listen to standard input, we will pull, we will populate standard input with 64 kilobyte chunks. As long as you're reading from standard input, you will have your backup there, again, without using any extra disk space in the process. Very cool. I like that. Uh, I'm a fan of Backblaze too. I use stuff there personally and professionally all the time. So cool. They've been a great partner, the cycle. Yeah. And we have a lot of other neat things coming out with them or in, in the works with them. But sidebar, I love when they break out a new version of their hardware model, like for storage. Like the, And it's always really cool. Like, how can we get five petabytes in a 2U rack or whatever? And they break down all the components and they basically give you a a list of things to buy to build it your, yourself. It's really interesting when hardware companies or hardware software or SaaSes, I guess you could call them, give you all the, the information to build it yourself because obviously it's a lot of work to do it. So there's not a lot of competition. So they're, they're not probably worried about people stealing their ideas, but it is really cool that they open source their hardware models. That's neat. 
Um, and one of the things, the other thing that I like that they do is when they, when they do their quarterly uh, blog and they mention like, they go into all the hard, the, uh, all of the different hard drives that they have running in their data center. And they talk about like, hey, this manufacturer, this model number or whatever, uh, failure, rates. Fail, yeah. failure rates of all the different models. It's like, you know, only a company like Backplay is, that is running, had an, you know, exabytes of, of storage is able to have that much of a statistic, kind of a sample size. Yeah. yeah. A sample size. That's perfect. All right. So I promised the people that I'd get to some more of their questions. I was thinking I would get things working and test on the free plan and migrate to light or business when the app goes live. Is it easy to migrate from the free plan to light or business? Yes. All of this is a, a billing change. There's no changes to infrastructure. There's no changes to anything else. It's literally a one-click button in the interface. Well, maybe a two-click button in the interface. All right. A cycle of replacement for your DevOps team at the small and medium app de uh, developer level. When should one consider and use cycle? Like we already covered that, but what's the gist of that? Yeah. So the, at least from our sales approach today, we found that our niche today as we're continuing to build awareness within the space and things like that is we try to target companies that have between four and 50 developers. That's been our, our sweet spot. If a company has one or two developers, yeah, so it can still be usable or valuable to them. There's a certain kind of point where some people are like, yeah, I'll just, you know, I, what I'm building is not sophisticated enough. I'll just throw it on a single Docker, I'll, I'll deploy a single VM and throw a Docker on it. But for companies that are looking to scale over time, that's where Cycle really fits in because it's so easy to add infrastructure and then scale those instances over more servers. So yeah, we usually target is, is somewhere in the development range or that number of developers. That's a good guide. I like that. Can I harden the servers to meet higher security requirements? So I'd have to... Uh, know more of what the security requirements uh, were desired there. But I guess we can dive into that very quickly. From a security perspective, Cycle defaults to everything being in its most secure by default. So what what does that mean? One, we don't have SSH on the server. When the operating system is, is booted, it lives in RAM exclusively. And when it fully starts, the last step is to remount the operating system in read-only. Uh, so that way you can't even make a change to the operating system once it's actually once, once our agent is on that box, our agent right. becomes read-only, but the operating system itself is no longer. And in terms of what ports are open, the only ports that are open are the ports for your load balancer and VXLAN. Those are the only thing, VXLAN, because your servers need to talk to each other with, yeah. with networks. And the IPs, uh, sorry, the ports that we open within your load balancers. And then in terms of like how to cycle communicate with these servers, these servers are a client to cycle. So that way, even if you're behind a firewall and everything, there's no ingress traffic from Cycle coming into your server. You have, your server connects back out to Cycle, so that way the ports are open on our side. And I guess one thing that I do want to clarify with that when I say there's no SSH, there's a lot of developers that will say, that's weird, like I want SSH. If you take away my SSH capabilities, like why would you do that? And there's two things. One, if we give developers the ability to SSH into the underlying host and they start making changes to IP routing or networking or any of these things, we can no longer reliably push updates to you. Our biggest value is that you don't have to care about these updates. So if you start making changes and it's not through our platform, we don't know what changes you've made. So that's one. But two is we've made a way for you to SSH into your containers. That is actually really cool. It's my favorite feature. At this point, we do a demo so if you're interested in the tool and how it functions, check out a link in the show note that will take you to the YouTube live that this comes from. Uh, so if you're okay with it, uh, I'll, I'll spend like 30 seconds and, and show that for yeah, uh, it. It's, 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 it's my, my absolute favorite feature in Cycle. So I'm, I'm back at my containers here. And if I go to a, a dashboard for this environment, actually, let's go to the environment that we deployed earlier. Let's go to the front end container. So we have these instances that we deployed. Let's say I wanted to, to connect to this specific instance. I can see the, the console here in the interface, right? But that's just a, that's just a one-way console. That right. just allows me to see what's happening. Right. Exactly. Right. But over here in the, the upper left-hand corner, as I zoom up, there's a button here that says request SSH access. So if I click that, it drops down an address and a password. And so if I copy that and I paste it in a clipboard here, it asks for a password and copy that. And now I'm inside of this container. But it's really, really neat if, you know, in terms of what just happened here. So you can see when we connected, we connected to a console service that is sitting outside of your infrastructure. So we did not open any ports. We did not install SSH to any of your containers. We did none of that. This port is open on a console service sitting outside of your infrastructure. And that token that we just logged in as will expire within 29 minutes and 15 seconds. Or if we want to expire right now, 
done. Now it's no one done. can log in with that. So in terms of like, if you're a, dev, a development team where you're, you're you know, continuing to add more developers and maybe developer leaves or you have to, or a developer ends up getting fired or something where you need to remove their access, removing their cycle account from your hub, immediately all access is gone. There's no keys that you have to go hunt down. There's no extra authentication. There's, it's just super right. simple. Right. Um, and then the, the other neat thing with this is if I move this instance between different providers, this will automatically figure out how to SSH into it, even right after a migration. Uh, so it's not like I have to sit here and re-guess things. Cycle just right. does it. Right. And so that's that's my favorite feature because it's just yeah, like, that's it's, pretty nice. it's so easy. It feels like a Docker exec without needing Docker. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that's always going to make everyone happy because uh, we always get nervous when we can't actually interact with a misbehaving system or try to figure out from just logs that are never, logs are never sufficient. It seems like no matter how much we improve logging, I, I'm always like, I wish we, I wish it actually logged that thing. And I'm not seeing anything about that thing. So it's nice. It's nice to have that as a backup plan. Uh, do you support Windows asking about Windows.NET framework? So Windows hosts. Unfortunately, no, we haven't had enough customers uh, ask for it. And again, that, that kind of goes back to how we started the, the, this episode of we only build things that the 80% or more want. I think in the time that we've been building this over the years, I think we might have had three or four people inquire about Windows. So it's just it's right. just such a small subset for the people who are coming to us. Not that it's obviously not usable to some people, but to the people who are, have been coming to us, it has not been enough of a, an ask for us to work in, into figuring out a solution there. Yeah. But the nice thing there is that if, if you are focused on Greenfield customers or Greenfield projects, at least, I'm imagining a lot of teams nowadays are looking at, well, what used to be called .NET Core, which is also Linux supported. The current .NET is multi-platform. So that, that's where, because I'm an old Windows admin that has, that seems to be friends with all the Windows people. <laughs> so my worldview is that there's a lot of them, even though I feel like over time, they're, they're, the number of Windows developers for server is shrinking. They're all either already on projects for moving to Linux or considering moving to Linux, not necessarily changing from .NET or to something else, but just using .NET and the new Linux builds. Please provide more details about how Cycle handles the stateful across multi-cluster. I'm guessing multi-cluster uh, being a multi-provider or multi-cloud. With Cycle, once you define a cluster, Applications cannot live across. That's a very purposeful decision. But against multiple clouds, over multiple clouds of providers, it's the exact same way as, as stateless from a UI perspective or an API perspective. Is as long as you know, as we go back, this main option is the big thing: is stateless versus stateful. Now, I'm guessing that the underlying reason, the inherent maybe context of that question, is like how do I handle replication and, and things like that? And we've decided early on that the platform itself should never handle data replication because if, if me as a platform if figuring out how to replicate your bits, I don't know how to do it the best way. Your application likely knows how to do that better than mine. It's, it's why Mongo uh, you know, has replication built into Mongo. So we, right. we, we try to step out of that as much as we can. But in terms of failover, which I'm guessing is the second part, which would be inherently be a second part of that question, with Cycle, we don't believe in failover. And I know that's a really weird thing to say, but we don't believe in active-passive, maybe is the better way of saying it. With Cycle, the general idea is that if something is important enough to you to that you don't want it to ever go down, it should always be running active. So when you deploy a container that's stateful, if you want to make sure that it will never go down, it's running multiple copies of it. And yes, that means that in some cases it will cost more. But some of the reasoning there is like back when I was at SingleHop, we'd see so many companies go through that process of deploying or building really elaborate failover processes. But then when shit would hit the fan, when things would go wrong, Right. It, things wouldn't fail over properly. And then they, they'd, they'd still be down. And so with Cycle, our whole philosophy is if everything is active, you're not hoping that something happens with some, when something bad happens because it's just already, it's already there. And so we run our platform in the exact same manner, right? So Cycle's core, which is obviously the portal, the API, the build systems, everything that our customer infrastructure is connecting back to is scaled across every provider we support. And I don't want to throw shade, but one of our providers had a pretty big outage about two and a half, three weeks ago or something like that. And Cycle didn't even know that anything was wrong. We had some customers that were only running infrastructure at the provider that had, you know, that experienced an experienced outage. Experienced it, yeah. Um, but the platform itself was perfectly fine because it's, we took that same approach of we run a duplicate core of Cycle across every provider. And with load balancing and things like that, we are built in for the situation that if something goes wrong, 
everything else is already online to help mitigate that. So, yeah, I completely subscribe to that opinion. And I love the way you say it, that everything should be active. There is no active plus failover because I've been for decades. I've been a part of teams that implement the idea of failover. I can remember projects where the failover data center was costing us 10,000 a month in infrastructure for something that never received a packet. And it would just sit there because they didn't want things turned off. And it wasn't that type of failover. They actually had things turned on, but load balancing was routing to a different location. And then we would have to implement failover testing evolutions where we're all like working after hours and we're going to, we're all nervous because it hasn't been failed over tested in six months and there's been a bunch of updates. So then we fail over. And then of course, there's always something that there's always work to be done to mitigate a failover problem that we didn't anticipate. So then that goes, and you end up with a, basically a failover team that, that manages for D-Day or whatever. And it's one of those things where it's almost like developing a product that no one uses because you're yeah. working so hard to develop this failover idea. It's, it never, it rarely, if ever gets used in a real context. And it's only for testing because you're, and you're testing, obviously, honestly, it always gets pushed off. Like the dev team's like, we're too busy on a release right now. We don't have time for a failover test. So then you're always not feeling like it's an it's important thing. It's like testing backups, right? People talk about testing backups, but very few people do because it's low priority. It's working today. We tested it last year. I'm sure it's still fine, even though it's probably totally not. So I love that your attitude is on that because you're, you're exactly like you're saying, you, you obviously have t uh, time in the trenches because the failover model is a failed model. I should quote that. It is. The failover well, model is a failed model. It's like the point that, that you just made with backups and, and failover, but then extending that all the way to Kubernetes. Like the problem we have as developers and DevOps engineers is that when you get something that finally works, you move on to something and you just inherently deprioritize anything before it, whether that's making sure your Kubernetes is up to date, making sure your backups work, making sure you're that you're ready for a failover. And so that's what this whole model is run everything as though everything matters, but the things that are redundant that you don't have to care about, let cycle watch for you, right? Like if a backup fails, it'll just tell you. There's just very upfront with a lot of those things that are easy to forget. That's a general approach for so many of these things. It's more of a mindset than like, yes, I'm proud of our technology, but it's the mindset behind it that I think is you know, maybe taking a different approach to things, I guess is more of what I'm saying. And I appreciate that. All right. So I'm going to rapid fire again, asking for a timeline of Azure support. So Azure support was something we actually had a meeting about yesterday in the office. And so we're hoping to have Azure released sometime probably in quarter three of this year. The We tried to add support for Azure at one point, but they had the whole like Linux agent thing. And so the problem was that when we would deploy servers into Azure, because we weren't running a cloud in an image with, with, with Azure's Linux agent, all of yeah. these servers would report as unhealthy. It's like, they were perfectly fine. There was nothing wrong with them. It was just Azure model did not work with the idea of having a stateless operating system. Let's say a lockdown operating system. Because like I said, it, right. it gets mounted read-only after you start it. You can't make changes to it. And their model expecting cloud in it and things like that did not work. So I'm hoping we have not had a chance to dive into that again. This was like two years ago. But I'm hoping mm -hmm. that when we dive in again this year, that not having the Linux agent or cloud in it support in an image does not yield a, hey, this container, this server is is unhealthy. Yeah, that would be a little misleading and it, and it would make us nervous. If one console was saying it's fine, the other console is telling me it's it's down. Your, your exactly. OS sounds a lot like Linux Kit. Is it related to that project? It's built on top of Linux Kit. Ah, yes. very so, nice. so, so, yeah, so it's Linux Kit with a custom kernel and then a number of extra like binaries. And you're, you're throwing a lot of containers in there. Yeah. But that's really cool because I've been looking, I, I was a big fan of Linux Kit early on and it was very low, it was very low level. And I was hoping to use it on some projects where people wanted to you know, look at embedded stuff or wanted to ship their images as like a, a VM, the old days of us all shipping VMware images as a embedded option for people that didn't want to have to manage the OS. And it always like you had to be some serious, you had to know Linux kernel. You had to know Linux, the basics of Linux, building an OS. So you basically had to understand OS building. And it wasn't really ready for end users. It never really got that success of being a friendly thing for the average infrastructure person. It's great to hear a success story because I know that Docker and the others, the, the community put a lot of work into that project. And uh, they don't have a blog that talks about Linux kit success or anything like that. So it's nice to hear that somebody's found usefulness with this. 
it definitely took a lot of time, like trial and error, trying to make it work. So we started adopting Linux Kit back in 2017. So before that, we had built like a static image. Sorry, we took, I think back then, it was like we had Fedora as like the base OS. And then we threw like a binary into it. This kind of works, but we weren't, we didn't reach MVP at that point. Yeah. So no, like we were just testing that internally. But then right. we were at DockerCon, I think it was DockerCon. Austin or was it maybe Seattle? Yeah, Austin's uh, when they announced it. I actually remember. Yeah, it was yeah. 2017. Yeah, yeah. So DockerCon Austin and we're I, and me and uh, my co-founder at the time we're sitting there and we're like, this is how we do it. This solves the problem we had. Yeah. And so I think before we left Austin, uh, we had started rewriting our, our OS build process to use Linux Kit. And like I said, it's a lot of time because you, like Linux Kit solved a lot of issues. But one of the things that makes Cycle more tricky, I think, than many cases is the fact that we try to deploy the exact same image to every provider. When you have AWS that handles networking different than, you know, a bare metal server, whether even if that's something related to something as simple as DHCP or how Vulture does expects uh, neighbor announcements for IPv6, most bare metal uh, providers, they just give you it in a metadata API. That's one of the other challenges that we had to figure out with a Linux kind of images. How do we have a, a base image that is standard enough, but flexible enough to boot on every provider just long enough to download some other proprietary stuff that allows us to take it. Once that other proprietary stuff runs, every server looks the same as every other server, regardless of what provider it's at. Yeah. Um, we would just standardize it. So that way, when our compute process starts and then your containers start, we don't have to care about the underlying provider anymore because it's it's been fully standardized from that point forward, which makes it so easy. So that as I was showing in the, the demo, when you want to move a container between providers, it's just super simple. Yeah. You know, there's no, nothing extra that needs to be. I know that was the main goal of containers anyway, but there's other intricacies that go into there, especially when you start dealing with networks that need to extend across providers, right. things like that. We've never really fully realize that dream all the way up and down the stack, right? Like containers don't solve the entire stack problem. And I deal with customers every week that are dealing with different ingress providers and Kubernetes across different platforms, different clouds, and how that, how do they create ingress rules that work everywhere? There's just, there's, there's, we're, everything's getting better all the time, but we're far from done. <laughs> yes. Uh, how to approach service mesh in cycle. If I don't get a, the Kubernetes service mesh style of functionality, what are comparables in cycle and how, how do I relate to what service mesh does for most people in Kubernetes? So that's always a weird question because like with cycle, we just entirely got rid of the whole reason of, of behind having a service mesh in the capacity that Kubernetes approaches it, right? Like obviously, you know, in cycle, as I had shown during the, the demo, the cycle does have services. We have discovery, we have VPN, we have load balancers, but these are all maintained automatically for you. Like they live on your infrastructure. Yes. As other containers, but it's not something that you have to make changes for. That being said, one of our long-term goals is to make it so that you can run your own service containers because the service container is really just a container with extra access like it's it's allowed to ask for more questions about the underlying server that it's running on just like how you with docker how you can mount the docker api into the container well cycle has a we call it the internal api it's, it's just a unix socket that gets mounted inside all service containers and then service containers can use that api to make changes to the containers in that environment or the containers in that environment or the environment itself and so as time goes on, like we might have people that start building more custom services, but it's really weird. Like, and I know that Kubernetes is, again, like we talked about at the beginning, built to solve every issue, right? So like yeah. you really need a lot of those custom service or the services that would end up in a service mesh. But with Cycle, like the three default services that we package have actually solved so far, everything that. that people have needed, yeah. um, we've been able to keep it very simple. Then Cycle automatically built, like, like uh, handles less than encrypt certificates, and there's just so many things that we've just taken care of. Yeah. And that was goes back to when we were when we started the podcast, and I was talking about how people usually, when they start looking at Cycle, they look for things to solve that they don't need to. And that's why we always tell people, give it two weeks, because the first week you're going to spend so much time trying to do things in the way that you used to before it starts to click and you realize you don't have to care about those things anymore. So, so it's always a kind of a weird question because it's like, how do you say you really don't need to care about it? Or yeah, not uh, empathetic with their needs. Yeah, I can see the dance you got to do there. That's That makes sense. We have gone long this time. We had a ton of great questions. What parts of everything we saw today can I control from a Git repo rather than the GUI? 
everything from an environment down. So you cannot deploy a server using the stack file, but you can deploy containers, you can manage services, you can manage IPs, you can manage images, you can manage everything from this screen, this environment down. Um, and so again, this is an environment, right? So, you know, the services you should discovery, VPN, load balancer, and then all of your containers can be in a, a stack file. The reason we do not include servers in that is that cycles model of being active. Most people, not all, but most people will have different applications that are unrelated to each other running on the same servers because the active kind of matter is like, Hey, instead of having as you were talking about earlier, active passive where that passive is just sitting there, people will say, hey, well, this other server is mainly used for something else, but to stay active, I'm going to throw something else or a lighter version of something running on it that is there on the chance that I ever need it. And actually that's maybe a little bit confusing. I guess very simply, Cycles model is built less around auto-scaling of the underlying physical infrastructure, or sorry, of the infrastructure, and more of how do you get better utilization out of that infrastructure in an active manner. So if you were to start dropping off infrastructure from a stack file and another environment was relying on it, things would get really weird, right? Now, mm. we do have customers that are doing that, but they have an extra step in the process using either a pipeline or the API. Because like we have a full-blown API that is, our portal is a consumer of our own API. And so you can do some really powerful things with our API. Um, but yeah, very simply with the stack, it's environment and down. Nice. I like it. So it's almost like the, the GUI is for the Terraform part and then everything else can be handled through, is it YAML? <laughs> I'm assuming YAML. It's actually JSON. Initially, we supported YAML and JSON, but like 80% of our support requests related to stack files were like, hey, my stack file is not working. And it ended up being like someone had indented a YAML file wrong mm -hmm. that we were like, you know what? We're going to go to just JSON. Support for that was just dropped immediately. It's so much easier, I think, to, to validate a, a, a yeah. JSON file. I do a lot of YAML linting in my day. So yeah, I can understand that. Thank you so much, Jake, uh, for being on the show. I appreciate all the demos. And it sounds like it's the, the product is quite complete, it seems like, after all these years of work. Jake, so we can find you on Twitter uh, at Jake Warner. And yep. we can obviously find Cycle at cycle.io. And you have a podcast. Tell, tell me about that. Yeah, so we started a podcast about six months ago, maybe seven. We were looking for a way to help tell our customer story and tell the story of some of our partners and just being able to show off some of the different efforts that we've been working on. And so we have the Cycle podcast. You can find it on cycle.io. We do an episode usually the first week of every month. Very nice. All right. I appreciate you being on. Thanks for being no, it's been it's been a blast. Uh, I, I always love diving into you know the nitty gritty with other people who've been in the same world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.